This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Brex. Designed specifically for venture-backed startups, Brex is the perfect corporate card for fast-growing companies. Head to brex.com and sign up with the promo TFR to get waived card fees for life. Welcome to the podcast about investing in startups, where existing investors can learn how to get the best deal possible. And those that have never before invested in startups can learn the keys to success from the venture experts. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Welcome back for part two of the episode with Lyndall Ekman on The Limited Partner. In this portion of the interview, we will cover questions including... If Lindell thinks that LP investment strategy is influencing VC fund managers, and if that tail is really wagging the dog, we will talk about some of the biggest challenges for the limited partner. We also discuss how LPs differentiate and attempt to get allocation with the best GPs. Lindell talks about his advice for investors and also first-time general partners that are raising a first fund. And we wrap up with Lindell's final thoughts on limited partners. Here's part two of the interview with Lindell Ekman of Foundry Group next. Do you think that LP investment strategy is driving the strategy of individual fund managers? And why or why not? You know, I, I would it would be a quick no, except that there are edge cases where a GP might have separate accounts or, uh, you know, undue capital concentration or specific LP source. I mean, look, it's customer concentration. They have a risk there. Um, and, and I think, you know, GPs might have a tendency not to evolve as quickly because gen- LPs, once they're locked in, are generally risk averse and, and kind of don't like change. There are a couple of specific examples of, of GPs that have changed their strategy. I, I don't want to name them, but you know, one, you know, I'd raised two or three successful funds, saw the market changing underneath them, becoming more competitive, and wanted to try a, a slightly different framework. And wow, the response from LPs was challenging for them. And uh, I had a conversation with him yesterday about it, and I thought it was it was interesting that in some ways it it kept people from evolving there. And then look, GPs and LPs were all guilty of this. There, you will always see a flood of new fund formation around the hot new term, be it big data or AI or machine learning or (laughs) VR. I mean, social networks. I mean, my favorite example is going all the way back to nanotech. Can you imagine nanotech funds? Yep. You know, back in 2000. So, look, there's always appetite for that. And if somebody can figure out how to get in business on the back of of a fad, I suppose good for them. Yeah, I mean, part of the reason I ask, recently I met with an institutional LP and was talking with them about their strategy. They manage about 100 million bucks. Or sorry, they have 100 million bucks that they can allocate to venture. And uh, they mentioned to me some very specific themes and some very specific ways that they want to invest that capital into specific fund managers. And we're having trouble identifying fund managers that had that strategy. And I was just sitting there and thinking, wow, it's got to be it's got to be tough for some of these individual fund managers not to 
not to adapt and and move to some of these hot sectors or move to some of these hot themes to uh, satisfy the interests of the LP community. Well, I think that's, uh, you know, the tail wagging the dog. Yep. You know, in, yep. in reality, in reality, entrepreneurs and the, and I think the changing capital needs of startups that, that do drive strategy and should drive strategy. Yep. We were just talking with Dave McClure about that very point and how tail could be wagging the dog. Okay. So moving on here, Lindell, what do you think are some of the biggest challenges for limited partners? You know, it's going to sound like I'm picking on limited partners, but but I'm not. I, I think that that it's a mistake that limited partners uh, aren't held in, in sort of higher regard. Um, you know, staffing's huge. That nobody, no LP that I know has too many people. That's just that is just not the case. They're in generally they're way understaffed, especially the public entities. You know, I think just as a high level metric, a billion per investment professional. That's a lot of money. <laughs> I don't <laughs> yeah. care how you how you invest it or how smart you are, how good you are, how hard you work. That that's a lot of capital to deploy in a smart way um, without being the dumb money or the flying capital. So staffing's huge. Uh, I think the incentives and the pay scales are all wrong, given you know really the importance of these pools of capital to our economy writ large. But but certainly you know in the case of pensions to the retirement accounts uh, of those people. I mean we're all capitalists and we're all greedy and we're all trying to make money and all that. But much of this capital comes from these pensions and people are relying on those returns. So they have a fully funded pension. And if they don't, if that, if those returns aren't delivered, we, the people have a much larger problem because we have to you know, figure out how to handle that underfunded amount. And there aren't many fully funded retirement uh, pensions out there in our in our world today so staffing if you look at the canadians they've done a really good job of you know getting pay scales and incentives right and they've they're attracting some of the best people out of public pensions in the u.s to come work for them in canada uh it's i know a guy a friend of mine that moved from california and he had a beautiful setup there and he's surviving those toronto winners but (laughs) they made it worth his while and they gave him more flexibility and they gave him more risk, you know. And so, I mean, that's just one example in particular. I'd say that in, in an attempt to avoid risk, LPs are always, uh, they're, they're over-diversifying. So I call it diversification. So, in, you know, <laughs> they're try, I mean, they really, they make them, they, they limit their ability to outperform. And I think that's just crazy. I think many LPs are realizing this, and that's an input to smaller allocations and cutting back the number of managers um, and it's and it's seen in the fundraising market with trying to put more money with the haves rather than the have-nots. Mm-hmm. Now that, that's an opportunity for me, but you know I think that's I think they're figuring that piece of it out. And you know a lot of LPs follow the endowment model, right or wrong, whether they have not they have the staff resources, brand profile, ability or nimbleness or risk profile. They follow that endowment you know model, and maybe they shouldn't. Maybe some LPs should pick where they invest a little more carefully. And, and, you know, that gets to kind of the institutional risk profile. So when you've got a, I don't know, call it a $35 billion pool of capital, and you get put in the paper for a $3 million loss, you just don't, that doesn't make sense. First of all, a $3 million loss is is a lot of money, but it's not in, you know, in, in respect of a $35 billion portfolio. 
And you also see, especially in the case of public entities, I was subject to this at UTEMCO, you know, the same thing with bonus compensation structures. So anytime somebody does try and pay somebody and attract and retain talent, it's put in the media. And it does seem like a lot of capital, but there's such important pools of capital that I think you want to, um, you know, keep the, the best talent there and they're, they're important. Uh, I mentioned the denominator effect, that pro cyclical piece, that, that's just bad behavior across the spectrum. And then I'd finally just say, you know, process. So, I mean, if GPs won't buy this at all, so GPs should just cover their ears at this point. Um, but <laughs> it's sort of amazing that, you know, after maybe four hours of FaceTime with a GP, that can lead to a, and maybe not even four hours, sometimes it's an hour meeting and some phone calls that that can lead to a 10 million or a 20 million or a $50 million check. I mean, this is in a in a blind pool vehicle, you know, where where you define loosely what they're going to invest in, but not specifically. <laughs> I mean, no wonder emerging managers struggle to raise capital, just given the process. I mean, it's relatively short for such a blind commitment. I mean, LPs are rewarded for risk. No, not really. They're rewarded for IBM stocks. So, you know, I think I think the it, it puts in some perverse incentives. It creates the haves and have nots. And, you know, maybe the process should be different. And, and this would be a chance for me to say, you know, reminder to those GPs, you can cover, uncover your ears now, uh, you know, always be fundraising. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, literally always be fun. The best time to meet someone. Well, first of all, the best time to fundraise is always. But especially after you close your fund, continue following up with those people that gave you the soft no. I, you know, I know of a VC who visits an LP every town in every town he goes to every trip. It is just what, you know, when he schedules a trip anywhere, he goes and sees at least one LP. It's it's check the box. A lot of people don't do that. And, you know, I think if you want to build uh, those relationships and get people on sides, give them more time, you know, have the, have them already be on team because they have this, this challenging process they have to run internally, you know, help the, the LP in that regard. Now, I think there's a there's a parallel with the entrepreneurs too. I mean, the entrepreneurs that I see very early that are just getting their structure and just getting their strategy together and building product, uh, you know, I may give them a no. But if they hang around, they send me updates, I do a call every quarter with them and, and get that comfort level and watch their progress. We've had that situation a couple times and we've invested. A thousand percent agree. What limited partners do is just one level up from what GPs do. And and in fact, my best learning as a limited partner was watching what good GPs did and, and implementing some of that. And frankly, what I'm doing, you know, here at Foundry is trying to go one level deeper. So not quite to me being a direct investor and a, G, a direct GP, but we're bridging that gap and consolidating the two. I, I actually, when we introduced Foundry Group Next, uh, I put that analogy up on a blog post. Awesome. So, you know, often we we hear about the chase from the standpoint of GPs chasing after LPs, but sometimes this this dynamic is reversed, and you know, LPs are trying to win over GPs that have a limited allocation in their fund. Can you talk a little bit about how an LP might differentiate and attempt to get an allocation in? what may be considered a, a hot or uh, well-established fund? 
for better or worse, I got a lot of experience with that. Um, <laughs> having been a, a large, a large investor, public investor, trying to get you know a meaningful allocation, um, and you know our our strategy, and, and frankly, the one that informed our success was we chose not to chase you know the sequoias and benchmarks and excels of the world. Great firms, Utimco wasn't the best investor for them, and we you know we went to the emerging manager where we could help support them, take a little more risk and evaluate them. You know, but look, generically, my money's definitely greener than yours, right? I mean, that, <laughs> capital, <laughs> money is money. So what what can you do? Yeah, you, know, you could be easier on like, you know, on process or on terms or, um, you know, on reporting and how frequently you interact and sort of are, are you seen as, quote, less of a bother? You know, really, it's, I mean, it's, it's relationship building. And that's that's any sales, right? It's relationship building. So you want to know the person you're partnering with, and hey, by the way, you're partnering with them for much longer than the average American marriage. So probably pretty important to get to know who it is. You know, you got to take a proactive approach. Well, out in front of a fundraise, like I said, I like to meet GPs right after they raised a fund. It's okay with me. I'll get have, have longer to get to know them, and I can sell myself and my money, and uh, I can get comfortable with them. They can get comfortable with us. Yeah, you know, like I said, we chose to go earlier. I'm doing that again here. You know, it's again, it's us bringing our LP and GP experience to bear for them. So, you know, I, I think if we can be helpful with them and even mentoring to some degree, as a senior partner would a new partner at a firm. I mean, we're here. We're not going to, you know, we're not going to force ourselves on anybody. But we think that that's the way that we're going to sell you know, against other capital and, and differentiate ourselves. We hope that our fund portfolio kind of binds itself into a supportive network. You know, I mean, much like GPs do with their portfolio companies. So if our GPs can think of themselves in a, in a supportive network, that's important. I, I don't want to use the word platform here as that implies direct services. Uh, you know, this, the kind of thing that Andreessen and, and, and others have, have, um, have brought to bear at the direct level, sure. But you know, we hope to find other ways to support our, our GPs, and so in a structured way. So, uh, you know, open question here for listeners, and much work for us to do. But would love to hear, especially from GPs, if they have ideas for how LPs could support them better. Hmm. And I think you know we want to do that. We've got, I think, the experience to do it, but we've got to figure out the right structure and the right. Um, you know, the right way to interact with them to help their business rather than be a challenge. Lyndall, do you have any advice for investors or first-time GPs listening to the show? Uh, well, you heard the one, always be fundraising. <laughs> you, sound like, uh, you sound like Alec Baldwin. Exactly. <laughs> um, you know, partnerships are about relationships. They're, they're shared ideals and experiences. I think if you find the right LPs, or vice versa, you know, the right GPs and make it something more than transactional or just capital. I think you might be surprised how beneficial it can be. You know, I would point to, to where I sit today. We built a really great personal relationship. The guys became friends and I was seeking advice for them, but then we decided to be partners. Uh, and, you know, that's a, that's a, that's an example of what ended up being a very special relationship and, and certainly beneficial early on to the guys and clearly beneficial to me, you know, later on. Any other things we didn't touch on with regards to the LP discussion that you'd like to uh, to finish up with? Oh, I, you know, I, 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 
I would be remiss if I didn't mention uh, on Twitter the hashtag OpenLP group. If listeners don't know about that, you should pay attention to that. That's where LPs are trying to trying to be more transparent, doing podcasts like this one, uh, you know, blog posts. I'm supporting that. I would also encourage LPs. I would support better organization among, especially venture LPs. There's a there's a big organization I was part of called the ILPA. I think they do great work. I think venture is a little bit different enough that there should be a subgroup of either ILPA or perhaps the NVCA, which I'm, I'm still a little hot at for not including venture fund of funds in their lobbying efforts to avoid SEC registration, <laughs> uh, despite being a large portion of the capital. We got left out in the cold um, at, at that point in time. So that thus the, uh, the intro uh, line that you had to hear from me. Gotcha. Uh, Lindell, if we could address any topic related to venture, what do you think should be addressed and who would you like to hear speak about it? You know, that's a tough one uh, for me. I don't think that venture tells its story very well. I don't think that, you know, the the mention of unicorns and, and, and fundraising prowess, you know, and TechCrunch and all the other tech websites uh, or even in podcasts, you know, helps the the image of the industry. I think if you took a larger perspective on venture capital, frankly, the way that it's historically been defined as uh, rather not just tech, but but writ large, you know, there's a heck of a story to tell. Part of the do-gooder in me, I did used to work for, you know, endowment, uh, nonprofit for 13 years, is that I believe that venture capital and, and tech venture capital can be the benefit uh, to our economy and really so, and help help pull some of that that um, that back for us. And the challenge on 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 tech and, and venture is lack of transparency of data. So if we could if we could pull together better data, you know whether it's CB Insights or Mattermark, one of our portfolio companies, I wish that we had more transparency of returns and outcomes. And that we celebrated those really grinded out, um, you know, venture startups that work. They work and they hustle. Maybe it takes five or seven years, and then they sell in an M and A deal, and it has a very good outcome. I think we should celebrate those as much as we celebrate the the consumer unicorns. So I guess rather than directly answer your question, I would say let's put a spotlight on the broader uh, benefit of venture capital in the economy. And I think we need to do that through data. And finally, Lindell, what's the best way for listeners to connect with you? Um, you know, I think uh, to steal a line uh, for my partners, I don't know if you've seen their ridiculous VC parody, I'm a VC. Oh, yeah. Uh, if, I expect you to see to, you in those, too. <laughs> there, there is some concern on my part about those coming uh, your way soon. Uh, <laughs> but, but if you need to find me, check out Facebook, LinkedIn, or tweet me was one of the lines in their, in their song. I'd say, look, the reality is that a, a warm introduction matters and my email is easily found. Awesome. So we should expect an appearance in one of these upcoming uh, videos? No promises, but uh, I don't think there's any way out of it for me. <laughs> well, I can't wait. Well, thanks again for the time, Lindell. It's been great to connect with you and uh, have heard a lot about you before. And it's very generous of you to, to spend your time here and, and help me out and help out the audience. Well, I hope it's useful and I appreciate talking about it. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Brex. 
Your startup is going to change the world, and the right corporate card will get you there even faster. The Brex Corporate Card for Startups offers 10 to 20 times higher limits than traditional corporate cards, automated expense tools, and huge rewards like four times points back on travel, three times back on restaurants, and two times back on recurring SaaS spend. And all with no personal guarantee. Sign up at Brex.com and get waived card fees for life with the code TFR. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Assure. For over three years, Newstack has been raising capital on a deal-by-deal basis, allowing individual investors to select each startup investment. Assure is the company behind the scenes that powers this process. When we have 10, 20, or 30 angels investing in a startup, we can't put all those folks directly on the startup's cap table. So those investors are rolled into a special purpose vehicle that occupies just one line item on the cap table. And Assure handles all ongoing fees, finances, and K-1s for us. We pay a one-time upfront fee, and avoid all the required yearly admin filings and bills. If you run an angel group, or you would like your LPs to invest in deal-by-deal sidecars, go to assure.co slash TFR for 20% off your first SPV. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Such a huge pleasure for me to have the opportunity to speak with Lindell. Let's recap key takeaways from the interview. Key takeaway number one is called Types of LPs. Of course, in the LP environment, we usually classify them as retail and or institutions. First, let's talk about retail investors. These are high net worth individuals investing their own capital. And this includes just individuals and family offices. Family offices, of course, being high net worth individuals that employ professionals to help them allocate their capital and invest across different asset classes. The second category was institutional investors. These are large pools of capital with professional staff, long time horizons, and commitments at the asset class level. This includes university endowments, pension funds, both public and private, insurance companies, collective vehicles, these OCIOs, the outsourced CIO institutions, that Lindell said acts like an outsourced endowment staff which manage groups of smaller endowments delivering some benefits of scale. And finally, fund of funds. Much like Founder Group Next, where LPs invest in the FG Next fund, and then Lindell uses that capital to invest in up-and-coming VC funds. Okay, key takeaway number two is called the six categories required for investing in a VC fund manager. Lindell talked about his six major items that he looks for in every GP that pitches to him. Number one was a sourcing advantage. How will the VC fund manager be able to source better deals than other funds? Number two was internal team dynamics. How are the interactions and interrelationships between the general partners? Number three was a strategy of portfolio construction. Does the fund size reflect the strategy? Does the manager understand how to build a portfolio and hold themselves accountable to it? Number four was performance. Is there a track record and how have previous investments performed? Number five was external relationships. 
How is their external relationship with other LPs and GPs? What kind of partner are they? Is there overlap with Foundry? Do they know how to act on a board of directors? And in this case, can the LP, Foundry Group, do direct investments together, and do they want that direct involvement? And finally, Lindell's sixth point was on legal terms. Does the limited partner agreement include some non-starters? And finally, Lindell concluded by saying that at a high level, he's just looking for a cogent plan of how the fund manager is going to build their business. And even if it's not an immediate fit, he likes to maintain and build the relationship over time to see if that fit develops for the next fund that the manager raises. And key takeaway number three is called issues and challenges with limited partners. Lindell called out a number of the challenges that he's seen in the limited partner community and the way that they invest. The first of which was gatekeepers. Uh, Especially with the large LPs out there, there can be a number of consultants and service providers that function as gatekeepers. The next area that he cited was around process and timing. Slow decisions with a longer process at multiple levels of LP organizations create a lot of friction and lack of ability to move forward in an expedient manner. The next item he cited he called diversification. This is where many LPs have over-diversified, which limits their ability to outperform as returns regress to the mean. Next was compensation. These professionals in the LP community, in some cases, may be managing $15 billion portfolios or greater. Lindell talked about his team of five at Utimco managing $5 billion, which is a billion dollars per person. So while their efforts have substantial impact with significant levels of assets managed, these professionals are often grossly underpaid. The next item Lindell talked about was the denominator effect of market fluctuations. So as the assets under management move up or down, the allocation to different asset classes must be force corrected to keep the percentage the same. This can be really challenging, especially when a small percentage of a portfolio at one of these institutional LPs is allocated to venture capital. With huge swings in the market, the venture capital allocation percentage can swing wildly in relation to the target percentage initially set out. And with venture capital, it's very difficult to get money out once you've committed it. So in these cases where the allocation needs to be adjusted down, the only lever that the LP has is to stop making new fund commitments. And Lindell's final point here was on misaligned incentives. Lindell talked about how LPs aren't rewarded for risk. They're rewarded for IBM stocks. This has created an environment of misaligned incentives where LPs can't take the kind of risk they're required to to meet their return expectations. Okay, that wraps up our key takeaways. We'll move on to the tip of the week. And this week's tip is called Access is Everything. In the recent interview where Colin Keeley interviewed me, he asked me for the most important lesson I've learned after 100 episodes and three years of investing. And my answer was access. In today's interview, Lindell also cited the value of access. In his list of six things he's looking for in a VC fund manager, number one was a sourcing advantage. How will the GP source and close better deals than other funds? 
What is their differentiation that provides them that sourcing advantage? While Lindell values the relationship he builds with first-time fund managers, I'd imagine even the best relationships don't result in investment when no sourcing advantage exists. Just the other night, I was out to dinner with some friends, and the guy sitting next to me, who I was meeting for the first time, was proudly speaking of his investment in a Blackstone fund. He spoke as if he had some superior selection strategy. Yet any of us have access to the public fund he was describing. I kept my thoughts to myself then, but I will share them now. That Blackstone fund that anyone can get in is not the one the best investors get in. Those funds are closed to the individual retail investor. Only large institutions with big check sizes and standing relationships will get an allocation in the best private equity and hedge fund products. And this access limitation exists across investment classes. Rarely can the no-value-add investor get into the best investments. This is likely why the vast majority of high-net-worth retail investors in the States have never invested in venture capital. They can't get access to the best returning funds, i.e. the Sequoias and Excels of the world. They don't have a big enough check size to get in with the medium-sized, solid returners. And they wouldn't even know where to begin with trying to select emerging fund managers. Those that have the best access move up the food chain quickly and attract larger professional capital. But Lindell is making investments in first-time fund managers. He's not even attempting to access Sequoia. He's looking for the next Sequoia, or at least the seedlings of it. By betting earlier on first-timers, he can access the most innovative minds in venture at a much smaller check size. And when a GP has success, Lindell will likely have the opportunity to continue investing in future funds. In a way, he's buying an option. As an investor in both Union Square and Foundry Group's first funds, Lindell identified some rising stars in the industry, and he rose with them. A similar parallel exists with seed investors and the startups they invest in. If one makes an early bet and gets a pro rata, they can continue investing for the life cycle of that business and ride the wave with them. So for all the investors out there, how do you think about access? Who do you partner with that has a sourcing advantage? Is your method for finding and closing startups unique? If so, there are LPs like Lindell that are looking for you. As always, show notes and links for everything discussed in the interview will be on the website. If you're enjoying the recent episodes, I'd really appreciate a shout out on social media. Simple tweet, Facebook message, or LinkedIn post would be awesome. It's always great hearing what folks have to say and interacting with them on these social channels. Okay, hope you enjoyed the episode today. And until next time, overprepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. See you next time. Thank you.